This is Swapside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we sit down to discuss Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Leloux. Greetings. Welcome to the dawn of the age of Aquarius, a new age of consciousness beyond scarcity. The age of teal. Right. Couldn't have picked a better color. Love teal. Big fan of teal. <laughs> Last few weeks, we were talking to Tom, um, talking about the fundamental principles of communist production distribution. I feel like within that conversation, there was, you know, like some question of like what self-management would look like. And so I feel like this piece, which is a patron request, uh, kind of coincidentally dovetails very well, I think, with our conversations with Tom. Oh, yeah. I mean, considering that this book is a deep crypto Hegelian Marxist theory of the history of consciousness and how... (laughs) It like, you know, how the human ego can like (laughs) be dissolved to make way for a post-scarcity, like a post-scarcity, like new way of working. Yes. Yes, I would agree with that very strongly. Yeah. So this is what this is. Uh, for anyone who's curious, it's a book by a guy named uh, Frederick Leloux. It's called Reinventing Organizations, a guide to creating organizations inspired by the next stage of human consciousness. And this is a book, there's two versions of it that we looked at a couple of chapters from the main one. I also looked at and recommend looking at the illustrated version. The book, broadly speaking, is about the way that contemporary organizations, particularly companies, are structured and how the author believes they can be structured in such a way so as to allow for people to uh, be fully self-actualized within their work and to kind of like break down the sort of contemporary, basically flatten a lot of the hierarchies within organizations. And not only is this like an explanation of how this is being accomplished by contemporary companies within capitalism, but it also argues, like you said, in this broader kind of teleological narrative that we're about to undergo some massive like paradigm shift where um, this new more egalitarian egalitarian way of systems organization is going to become like the default organizational mode it's so weird this is so weird i feel like in order to do this justice not one step back patron who's you know pushing the gun at our backs so that we read this strange gee whiz silicon valley management book (laughs) um sent us a a really nice letter about why that was by our patron julian thank you so much julian not only for this fascinating pick not only for the money which 
for giving us your reasoning for why you picked this. It really helped me like direct my reading as for what I'm looking for. Would you object if I if I read a bit of this? Because I feel like it it does a great job introducing things. Yeah, go for it. In the spirit of advisory modes of executing work, I figured I'd ask. Letter begins, Dear Swampside Gang, For my not one step back, I chose Reinventing Organizations, a guide to creating organizations inspired by the next stage of human consciousness. It sets out to discover how to do workers' self-management that's neither Mondragon nor your cliche anarchist bookstore, while being drenched in what I can best summarize as liberal, feel-good, Silicon Valley bullshit, including the esotericism, as you might have guessed from the title. The author, Frederic Laloux, is an associate partner with McKinsey & Company and now lives a rather quiet life with his family in an eco-village in the U.S., choosing to cash in way less on this book's success than he probably could. He self-published it at first, and you can still get it for free at reinventingorganizations.com. The book gets... The book got its initial publicity boost from Ken Wilber, who wrote the foreword and is kind of famous in certain spiritual circles. Lalu uses part of his integral theory and spiral dynamics as framework, but that's not really important. What's important are the actually existing worker-managed, although not worker-owned, organizations presented in the book. It became an instant classic of, quote, radical, liberal, new work current. That is, on the one hand, not question capitalism at all, But on the other hand, once you overcome how we currently do things because of the environment and alienation by flattening hierarchies and getting people to be nicer to each other, maybe that's too harsh a straw man. I stumbled onto this book by accident a few years ago while looking at some fringe management literature because I was frustrated with the dysfunctional self-organization of a student initiative I volunteered for. While prioritizing which books and articles to start with, this book had a huge advantage of being available as an audiobook. Otherwise, I'd probably have never taken it up. When listening to it, my mood constantly switches between, fuck yeah, this is what organizations will look like under communism. The author presents a very rosy view. This hippie stuff is probably not all that practical and not as important for day-to-day work as he portrays it to be. Oh god, this works too well, and it'll just be another layer of simulation to further capitalist exploitation. Lulu has researched several organizations he deemed evolved enough to feature in the book, but he introduces them one at a time when it fits the overall story that he wants to tell. So don't be irritating with him going on and on about just one organization in the beginning. I chose reinventing organizations because the overall concept of the book is so insane from a Marxist perspective. And I think it's going to be fun. Good organizing, not just classic leftist organizing, but how to run a large organization like a factory without bureaucratization is damn hard and won't spring up spontaneously during a revolution. It's something where the left really lacks skills. And I think the book rhymes with many topics talked about on the podcast, like cybernetics, the Soviet bureaucracy, or the internal dynamics of leftist sects. I hope reading and listening to this won't just be an agonizing slog through incoherent liberal rambling, but, the, but that you'll have just as much fun as I did, cringing and marveling at this beautiful mess of a book. Live long and prosper, Julian. So, again, thank you, Julian. Yeah, so it's weird to me that this guy worked at McKinsey. Um, 
which is like a very sus institution. <laughs> um, Can but, you go to that? Well, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, Pete Buttigieg worked for McKinsey. And McKinsey... <laughs> It, and that's like the that's the that's the node that's there's a lot of ties to him being like you know conspiracy theories of him being like some kind of like asset. Oh. Uh, but yeah, but McKinsey just has like okay. they were they connected had connections to Enron and opioid academic and fucking ICE and Saudis oh. and all kinds of shit. Like yeah, so uh, <laughs> you know that's definitely something I didn't. I maybe I maybe glossed over that part when I was looking at the letter, but oh that God. jumped out at me when when you said it out loud. Um, so <clears throat> that's one thing. I'm just, but I'm kind of looking at his website, and uh, you know, it is very much aimed at the TED Talk circuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's like a yeah, section sure. un, under about where it's like, um, well, one thing that's cool, there is like a pay what feels right. You can basically just get the PDFs of it for free, or you could, you know, like. Uh, like when Radiohead first released In Rainbows, you can just play I think it's fair. went right to In Rainbows and uh, the Saul Williams album he did with Trent Reznor. Um, but then there's like, I don't know, the, I'm just looking at the photos, Biowood Photos for Press Articles page. And there's just like a bunch of pictures of him that are like, it says picture one and then download file and it's a picture of him. And yeah, and there's like, there's like, there's like uh, 11 of these. And I guess this is for press or whatever. It just it looks weird. And uh, here's, here's here's his self bio. So Frederick Lelou tries to square, though not always easily, the many projects he's passionate about with his inner knowing that he is meant to live a simple life, spending much time with his family and whenever possible in the silent pl- presence of trees. Um, Frederick's. I know book a lot re- about the silent presence of trees personally. Frederick's book, Reinventing Organization, has sold more than half a million copies and is considered by many to be the most influential business book of the decade. Described as groundbreaking, world-changing, and a leap in management thinking by some of the most respected scholars of management and human development, it has sparked a global movement with hundreds, probably thousands of organizations adopting radically more powerful and soulful management practices. A former... A former associate partner with McKinsey and Company, uh, Lalu holds an MBA from in INSEAD and a degree of in coaching from Newfield Network in Boulder, Colorado. Okay. In coaching, you know he uses coach as a substitute for like a boss that doesn't have any like executive abilities. I know he he wouldn't think of them as bosses, but. Roughly speaking, they kind of go in certain types of evolutionary teal organizations. We'll get into the whole color scheme thing in a bit. In those types of organizations, you do sometimes have people coordinating and checking in, but since they're not executing the tasks, they don't have any say over anything. And he sometimes calls those coaches. So I don't know, that just jumped out at me. Um, and then the rest of it is just, uh, he traveled widely and speaks five languages. Frederick Lou lives in Ithaca, New York, USA, where he is blessed to share his life with his wife, Helene, and their two children. Yeah, he speaks um, five languages, you know, Russian, yeah. German, <laughs> uh, French. Let's see, what, what, other, what other languages would he, you know, to, to, to interact with the original H- Hegel and Marxese? I really wonder where that resemblance is coming from because it's fucking uncanny. You see it. I know you do. Yeah, no, th- that's McKinsey guy. No, uh-uh. you know, there's, there's no like way. A la- there's a lab where they're all fucking grown. 
<laughs> oh yeah, is, is, yeah. Buttigieg is a child of yeah. a Marxist as well. well. He's a child of a Marxist. His big thing was I speak seven languages or whatever. He used to, you know what I mean? Oh, Seems like every debate he was talking about how many languages he spoke. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, well traveled. You know. Oh, anyway. Um. <laughs> so honestly, yeah. This. I'm glad. I'm glad you actually read that out loud because this is really starting to sour me on this dude. <laughs> It's amazing, though, because so much of what he says is like, like, we are dealing with at least an an, an Egalian theory of history here. Mm-hmm. It's like, note for I mean, note. It's teleological. Is it? I mean, OK, so the, maybe let's just talk a little bit about like the color coding system he has. Right. I want you to turn to page 35 in the main book. It's not just a Hegelian version, although it is very much Hegelian in that he's thinking of stages of consciousness um, and that he's mainly concerned with alienation and power, power distribution, and the ways in which power can, after being built up like this, no longer have to be a zero-sum game. So that's a very left Hegelian way of looking at things. Okay, I didn't see this chart. So, okay, so at the he, there's basically I didn't I missed infrared and magenta. I have no it? idea what the fuck infrared and magenta are. And this is the only time I was exposed to it. It's probably because you know we didn't read these chapters. I'm gonna so like, j- j- go just back. for anyone who's not following along visually. So, okay, I'm gonna br- let's let's just go before I explain this chart. Let's go through and just break down like his his teleology. Okay, so at the base. Earliest in prehistory, there's what he calls, um, and here's the thing too, like the structure of social organization that he categorizes here, um, that he, and it is Hegelian that he like makes these abstractions um, in order to illustrate a point, which, but we'll get to that in a second. So okay, so he basically conflates the the forms of social organizations that he categorizes with worldviews. So for red, he calls it red worldview or impulsive worldview. Yeah, impulsive this, red paradigm. Right. So this this he basically dates back in the illustrated version. They literally have a drawing of like a big caveman with like a <laughs> with like a you know one of like one of those clubs that like Fred Flintstone had and pointing at like a smaller guy. But basically, this is like the earliest form of social order where you basically have like some charismatic strong man kind of running running a loose loose assemblage of individuals um simply through brute force and you know his own whatever personal charisma he has um so the red worldview is an organization run informally by a powerful strongman the archetype he uses for it is like a street mafia gang um and what he argues are kind of like the two br- big key breakthroughs uh, key breakthroughs in this form of organization is having a division of labor and top down authority right but it's a very it's a very short hierarchy because there's just you know one chief or whatever uh, and obviously we're not taking we're we're not taking these at like face value cuz th- i imagine this is like a, you know abysmal anthropology but anyway uh two amber uh, conformist worldview so this is basically having like a regularized set of rules and rec- replicable processes um and so 
the archetype for that would be something like the army or the Catholic Church, right? So everybody has to kind of fit into this mold in order to make up like this larger unit that is very highly regularized. Um, and the two key breakthroughs for that that he says are rep, rec, yeah, replicable processes and having a stable organizational chart. In other words, because everybody is put into this box, it's easy to know like what role everyone plays because everything is very cut and dry. Yeah, and where the, the guiding metaphor for the red organization is a wolf pack versus in the amber organization, the guiding metaphor is the army, um, which... More, more on that later. Yeah. So then the next, the next color is orange. Uh, orange is achievement worldview, and so the dominant metaphor he has for that is organizations as machines. Um, and so you know this is what you basically get with the advent of the industrial revolution. Um, so you basically have uh, the key innovations would be like the key breakthroughs would be innovation, having accountability and something like a meritocracy where because there are metrics that you can use to measure people, you can deter, you know, move people up as they become more useful. Um, and so the example that he has is like most major corporations. The next step, and maybe, maybe this would roughly fit into being maybe post-industrial. This is the green pluralistic worldview. And so the, the dominant metaphor here, and I'm sure, Every one of our fucking listeners who's had a job has heard this one. The metaphor here is organizations as families. Um, and so the key breakthroughs to this form, this form of organization is empowerment, values-driven culture, and stakeholder culture. And so the examples he has is like Southwest Airlines and like uh, Ben and Cherries. <laughs> um, all this is a prelude. All, all, all this history is but a prelude. To the final level, this is teal, which is an evolutionary worldview. And this, the idea is, the world is a place for individual and collective unfolding. Um, so, and one thing that he does that is, again, will also be familiar to people with this form of argumentation is he immediately admits that these are abstractions, and often, like these these types of social relationships will coexist even within specific organizations. Um, and that, and that these are just kind of like abstract categories. He's used. but there is also kind of he do, I, there is a clear implied historical narrative here. Um, it's it, it isn't implied. I will get into where it's explicit. Well, yeah, I, mean, it's expl- yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, I guess it is explicit. But well, I'll, in the I'll get fr- into that. I'll get it, say what you're gonna say. Well, yeah, in the book it is explicit, but even in the framing of this argument, there's it's teleological. Yeah, he even goes out of his way to say, now, 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 just because something is comes later doesn't mean it's better. And then he will fall back on, well, it's really just more complex, right? Like, that's what it really means. And that it's, you know, it's based on the problems that they're trying to solve or whatever. The eventual guiding metaphor that he ends up for teal organizations is an organism, Okay, so all the, all the bordigists and cyberneticians and the crowd say ho, and I guess fascists. But I, I, if you're in the crowd, <laughs> I have yeah. other instructions for you. Um, so, but I, I want to go a page back to page um, to page thirty five, where there is a chart of human history, where a hundred thousand years so a hundred thousand years ago. Infrared societies dominated. 
And then, like, about 25,000 years ago, magenta organizations start to form. I'm sorry, I should say this. Infrared societies. Okay, okay. All right, all right. Because this, this is actually part of his theory of history. The infrared and magenta, they don't get corresponding organizational types. Uh, but infrared society has existed 100,000 years ago. Magenta societies start popping up 25,000 years ago. And then you have this upward arrow that's unmistakable if you've ever done an anthropology class, and especially if it's a Marxist-inspired anthropology class. But these days, any good materialist anthropology class will tell you the truth, that humanity lived in foraging bands for the majority of its existence, and most of the forms of so-called civilization that we're all like really into typologizing and studying, even as Marxists, all basically happened in a blip of time very recently in the scale of, you know, the time frame of the species. So you have this graph that's like, like right at the end, it all just goes right up and you get all these stages all bunched up towards the end. Like it's an unmistakable resemblance. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I just pulled, I just pulled up his stuff on like uh, infrared and, and magenta. Yeah. Yeah. It's earlier in the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but it, I, I'm just, I just browsed it really quick and like he, yeah, all he talks about is like the capacities of human cognition um, in those sections. Um, so there really isn't like any kind of like meaningful like organization. But he's just talking about how, you know, like human cognition uh, seemed to develop. This seemed to be based on, you know, different like archaeological and theories and so forth. But yeah, that doesn't yeah. really get into like or organizational types until you get to red. Well, yeah, because in a way, like these aren't organizational, like, I don't know, these aren't like, how do I put this? Like, so like reactive infrared is the earliest developmental stage. Okay. It, it's from a thousand to 500 BC, I say. Um, so 5,000 years ago, not 25,000. This one it ends, I guess. Um, anyway, so yeah, this is just foraging bands, essentially. That's infrared. Um, Ma magic magenta so there's reactive infrared and magic magenta this yeah okay this corresponds with small family bands to tribes scaling up to a few hundred people and yeah as you said it's mainly a cognitive step up to handle complexity also this is all <laughs> This is all also mapped onto different stages of human development in terms of individuals and ch children and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and so then 10,000 years ago, oh, I guess magic magenta pops up 15,000 years ago. That's what he intended with that chart. That chart is weird. Anyway, so 15,000 years ago. Um, so yeah, then impulsive red comes up and then there's actual organizational forms that can be repeated in a sense in the modern world. I don't know how you ended up categorizing this in your head, but for me, when I'm looking at this here, and I should say that I wasn't even aware of infrared and magenta, um, really, and the ins and outs of what he meant by that. So when I was looking at this, 
you know, when I looked at impulsive red, I saw essentially something like, you know, the ancient mode of production. You know, when I saw um, conformist orange, and this is probably the weakest metaphor, which is also Marxist because this theory, our theories are bad about feudalism. You know, I, I saw his comparisons to the Catholic Church and to those sorts of bureaucracies as a, you know, essentially sort of a nod to feudalism. It's also sort of like bourgeois bureaucracy. And, um, and probably in reality, the Soviet Union, but more on that later. Um, the most obvious one is Achievement Orange. That's clearly liberalism and capitalism. Yeah, it's um, industrial society. Yeah. And the green paradigm, I thought it was kind of fun. He refers to this as a sort of postmodern consciousness. But in my head, I can't help but think of it as dumb attempts at socialism, stupid attempts at socialism that are too egalitarian and utopian and can't possibly actually provide a new paradigm that they're shooting for. He never says that, right? But it seems implied in a way that the ways that green organizations try to do these things just isn't as good as teal. Yeah, well... I'll a lot of times like green organizations it's a lot of it's window dressing right um where it's like they basically they want to pretend like they have teal mindset but really it's it's usually like an orange or amber kind of organization um yeah you know like i've i've seen this i've seen this stuff at like my job or whatever where you know they adopt all this kind of language of like everybody like do their thing and you know like we're gonna break down walls and this and that, but nobody trusts and this we'll get into this maybe a little later. You know nobody. <coughs> it's still basically like a bureaucratically structured organization, and so nobody trusts like the leadership on it. And nobody nobody trusts them to be serious to actually like go all the way. So a lot of this stuff is just basically just window dressing on the previously existing organization. You know. It's not really, it doesn't represent like a substantial like leap forward in consciousness, which is maybe also how you could characterize, you know, like, like late capitalist, you know, quote unquote post-industrial society, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't think green consciousness really, in a way, the metaphor that I was using is the old, like, I don't know, like the, when Engels looks at the joint stop joint stock company and says, oh, that's capitalist communism. You see what they're doing here, right? They're pushing bourgeois quality to its maximum. In, in another sense, that inspires a vision of socialist transition that we talked a lot about during the fundamental principles, epi principles episode of Rudolf Hilferding and the general cartel. Um, so in a way, I saw that as like lower stage socialism in like the super Stalinist way. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and teal consciousness is full communism because yeah. it's literally about the transcendence of a scarcity consciousness towards the full expression of each. I mean, it's really, really there. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and you know, I mean, th- I think there is something interesting about this categorization. One, it's useful for us to break this down because some of this terminology gives you a sense of where the author's coming from and the kind of the language they use and what they mean by teal, really, because the rest of this is about right. teal. Um, teal is not this other stuff. Um, but it's also just interesting because, you know, you know, reasoning about things in terms of like modes of production or, you know, like some of the inherited teleological aspects in Marxism, you know, from Hegel, you know, makes it there's a certain kind of like faint recognition you see there, um, even if it's coming from even though this is this is a utopian text mm-hmm. um, and it's yeah. it's uto- it's utopian in a way that all utopias are absurd <laughs> uh, but it's also kind of inspiring in the way that utopias can be inspiring. Um, if if yeah. if it, if you turn your brain off just a little bit, because <laughs> like the chat right now is going off about like, oh my god, I can't believe I had to read this. But I'm going to be real with you. I was looking at this being like, you know, I could run Emancipation Network in a little more of an evolutionary teal way. Like, yeah, I'm like, I was like, I was like, man, maybe we should, maybe I should start a brewery. Like, they're not. <laughs> There aren't enough of those. Yeah. We'll, but we'll do it different. We'll do it yeah, again. Yeah, we'll totally do it different. You know, yeah. yeah, let's let's get all the money, all the gobs of money that Emancipation Network has <laughs> piled up over the years, and let's start a brewery. We can do this, gang. Oh, hell. Um, okay, so... Um, no, but what, what, I guess what I was trying to say is that it, it is actually... It has some good management advice, which, which yeah, is no. strange... And scary from the the note of, you know, total subsumption terror in the intro that Julian gave us. You know, there is something frightening about this being a somewhat compelling framework, despite the fact that, you know, what's most Hegelian about it is that we're detached from economic, you know, ownership. <laughs> right. <laughs> that we're, we're not actually dealing with forms of ownership we're not really dealing with modes of production or if you think the modes of production series theory is garbage because it resembles the kind this kind of cockamamie theorizing um then you know it's still not super economically grounded even though it's about economics right well and and him doing it this way is useful to illustrating his point and giving you an idea of um uh, it's a framework with which to think about it. And, you know, I feel like sometimes frameworks don't always have to be literally true to be useful. Um, I don't think that this has to be, like, anthropologically accurate to be an interesting way to think about it and to set up, I think, the main points that he makes in this book. Um, there's just one other thing, too. There's a section on remuneration where he talks about, basically, red is sharing the spoils, amber is same work, same pay, orange is individual incentives, and green is team bonuses. That's probably his worst argument, argued, I think, um, because there's no, like, economic mechanism that would explain why that's the case within his framework but anyway but but, um, but but it is also the most simple and the most materialist version of what he's actually saying like it it's sort of a mode of distribution argument when he puts it that way but most of the book is talking about power and decision making right well and the most the most interesting thing i think about this book at least for me and maybe where its real utility is is him going into the different examples because this guy basically said that he surveyed a bunch of different organizations all over the world 
until he found he distilled and found like a few key examples that are really illustrating the principles of like teal organization that he's talking about. Um, and the one that he starts with that he like really really zeroes in on is um, Bert Zorg, uh, which is first of all very cool name. It it sounds just it sounds like something like the Swedish chef would say. Um, yeah, and but it also he, wouldn't be out of place on Futurama. Exactly, and so basically, Bert Zorg uh, was ba- is a basically a company of sorts of neighborhood nurses in the Netherlands, I believe it was. Um, da- it, yeah, yeah, Netherlands. Um, basically, in the eighties. Long story short, what happened was in the eighties. The nurses who make these home visits to like homebound patients or people who otherwise it's very difficult for them to get, you know, get to a doctor or whatever. Um, they were being increasingly subjected to tailorism by bureaucrats. And so you get these things where, you know, it's like you go to this person's house at this time and do this. And each thing that you do should take, you know, X amount of time. And everything they do is like super micromanaged. And so it was causing problems for their work because. They weren't developing relationships with their clients, so the people didn't trust them or wouldn't tell them really about all their problems, which was ruining preventative care. So eventually someone decided this sucks and decided to start their own organization, um, which is Bertzorg. And Bertzorg is very different. So it's completely... It's almost completely flat. It's Each unit of it consists of 10 people, 10 nurses... And there are no real official job titles. And all the different tasks in terms of running the 10 nurse unit are distributed out to basically whoever wants to do it. So, you know, like inventory and putting in orders and, you know, managing clients and all, you know, all that stuff is basically done in unit with these 10 people. Um, And they basically pursued a more humanistic form of nursing care where they would, like, for instance, like the first thing they do when they sit down with like a patient is just sit down and have coffee with them and just talk to them about their lives. And so they were able to develop much deeper relationships with their clients, which got them to the clients to open up to them and tell them stuff that they probably needed to know, which helped preventative care and led to much stronger patient outcomes. Right. And also I'm sure these people were like less lonely, which is pretty you know significant in terms of, you know, furthering health outcomes. Um, but what's interesting about it is that each, each node of 10 people, 10 to 12 nurses um, just you basically just start a new note you don't build like this hierarchical system and the way that they kind of manage problems with them is that they have what are called coaches and coaches are people who are employed by the broader company to help basically go to an individual unit that's having trouble and help them troubleshoot or resolve whatever conflicts it is that they have to resolve um, and what they find with this is that um, far from being increasingly like apathetic and burned out at nursing, the nurses actually work more. If they work more, it's because they want to work more, and because you know they basically feel like they're in control of their lives and what they're doing. <laughs> um, let's see what else about its yeah. social structure, which which I actually found inspiring. But again, I'm feeling Julian's note of panic. <laughs> like a bunch of managers found that by getting rid of you know, these orange restrictions, people will work more out of passion. Basically, the author then kind of talks about how there are a bunch of different organizations like this. It's not just Bert Zorg, although Bert Zorg seems to be the one 
that fits most clearly um, within this ideal framework that he has. Um, some of the other major examples he has is uh, Sun Hydraulics, uh, which is actually based near where I live. Um, manuf yeah, manufactures hydraulic valves and manifolds. Um, there's uh, FAVI, which is a famous uh, brass foundry automotive supplier in France. Um, another another odd one is called Morningstar, which is basically, I guess, the tomato pro tomato processing, uh, transport harvesting processing outfit in California. Uh, that is like the largest producer of tomato like tomato paste in the world. Wow. Um, I'm guessing no relation to Morningstar that was acquired by Kellogg's, the fake uh, sausage providers. Um, let's see. There's yeah, AES, I guess, is another global producer and distributor of electricity. Yeah, and A AES, not to be confused with what you're thinking about AES. Uh, but the uh, So he basically finds all these different examples. Um, I'm trying to figure out like what the commonalities are here because it is interesting that the it does it does seem to skew toward these and we can go into like some more examples in detail. I don't know. How should we approach this? Should we just like run through different examples to give people a bigger picture here or should we just um I don't know what, what do you think? I would like to do a little more of an overview of just evolutionary teal. I, I'm just, we didn't really coordinate this beforehand, so sorry for springing this on you. But there's just a couple things from the evolutionary teal chapter uh, 1.3 that are like, there's like a wisdom beyond rationality, and there's a cognitive breakthrough in, in the ability to reason in paradox transcending the simple either or with a more complex both and thinking breathing in and breathing out provides an easy illustration of the difference in either or thinking we see them as opposites in both and thinking we view them as two elements that need each other so again one of the laws of dialectics is codified by angles the unity of opposites argued for right here usually it's quality usually it's quantity into quality that you get in these books you know but here we have unity and opposites yeah and the breathing metaphor is very like you know it's in genre for this sort of thing right i he, there is some commentary on the on a potential transition from green to teal as well, which I'm sure will delight our Stalinist listeners. Um, yeah, so yeah, Bertzorg, they basically have like, as of this writing, which this was written in, I think, 2014, they had about 7,000 nurses in the company and about 30 people working in like the central headquarters. Um, let's see. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to because he definitely like extrapolates principles from the different examples. I'm trying to figure out how to proceed from here. He sort of scatters them about. We could go over the breakthroughs of evolutionary teal organizations. It's on page 56. Again, not a chapter we were supposed to read, but I couldn't help it. So, self-management. Oh, yeah, this is on uh, 56. So, Self-management. Teal organizations have found the key to operate effectively, even at a large scale. 
with a system based on peer relationships without a need for either har- either hierarchy or consensus. Note, the critique of Chris, the critique of consensus will play a part in this book. Wholeness. Organizations have always been places that encourage people to show up with a narrow professional self and to check other parts of the self at the door. They often require us to show a masculine resolve. And yes, this book also argues for, you know, cultivating the masculine and feminine elements in everyone, which is as close to queer liberation as this will argue. Anyway, um, to display determination and strength and to hide doubts and vulnerability, rationality rules as king while the emotional, intuitive, and spiritual parts of ourselves often unwelcome, often feel unwelcome, out of place. Teal organizations have developed a consistent set of practices that invite us to reclaim our inner wholeness and bring all of who we are to work. And three, evolutionary purpose. Teal organizations are seen as having a life and a sense of direction of their own. Instead of trying to predict and control the future, members of the organization are invited to listen in and understand what the organization wants to become, what purpose it wants to serve. So, yeah, I suppose those are the big, the big things. You know, there's self-management, wholeness, which obviously means transitioning to become your shadow self, and evolutionary purpose. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Was that that I stutter? <laughs> <laughs> so the primary examples that he pulls, it seems to be the yeah, it seems to skew towards skilled labor, uh, but not always. Um, right. and not always. I think, right. Right. But I, I think it's yeah, it skews towards that. And um, so one thing that this made me think of that they all kind of had in common was that I think one thing that helps to make this structural stuff work is that all of these organizations have pretty clear, there's a pretty clear sense of what they're for. Right. Um, like for Bert's org, they're, th- they're nurses. Their job, their job is to be nurses, right? Yeah. FAVI, their, their job is to make very specific auto parts, you know, for other companies. Um, right. Like all these, all the, like, uh, Morningstar produces tomato paste, right? Like there's very clear. Yes. So within this framework, there is a clear sense of like what these companies are supposed to do, which probably simplifies like decision making quite a bit, right? It's just okay. How do we accomplish X objective? Um, like I think maybe we're maybe I'm getting ahead of ourselves here, but like I think that part of the problem what this throws into relief is like part of the problem with flattened hierarchies within leftist organizations is more just that there isn't a clear consensus on what to do exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, or, or even like a plurality. Right. Uh, so you get people running off in a million different directions. Whereas with this, yes, even if you flat, you basically remove regularized procedures and flatten hierarchies completely. If people know exactly what it is that they're working towards collectively, it's much easier that definitely reduces a lot of the friction and it gives things a sense of direction. I think a good example of this, um, which is one that he doesn't pull, but which is a company that's kind of run on these flattened horizontalist follow your muse principles is Steam. Or sorry, Valve, the company that produces Steam. He spends one paragraph on Valve. Really? Where's that? Yeah, let me find it. I highlighted it in purple because I was very excited. It was right when I was thinking of 
Hmm, I wonder how these companies are doing right now. Okay, he mentions Valve on page 59, but where does he actually talk about it? Oh, it looks like there's more than one reference, but let's see. He quotes the Valve Handbook for Employees on page 84, saying, As you found out by now, you are not hired to fill a specific job description. You are hired to constantly be looking around for the most valuable work you could be doing. And then on page 86, he says the following. Valve, a Seattle-based, a Seattle game software company whose 400 employees work entirely based on self-management principles, has pushed physical fluidity a step further. All employees have desks on wheels. Every day, some people will roll their desk to a new place depending on the projects they join or leave. All it takes is unplugging the cables from the wall in one place and plugging them in somewhere else. The fluid way Valve runs projects, people vote with their feet, is physically reflected in the office space in the form of ever-morphing clusters of desks huddling together to get work done. Because people move around so often, the company has created an app on its intranet to locate, to locate colleagues. It renders a map of the office in real time, showing the spots where people have plugged their computers into the wall. Yeah, but part of the problem this is, this is caused for Valve is that because people are given a great in their like open allocation system, people are given a great deal of freedom to vote with their feet on projects. So you basically get a lot of they've been they've had a lot of trouble in terms of developing new games in that pro, a lot of projects kind of fail to get off the ground. Like things get going and it gets some momentum, but it hits hiccups and then it loses interest to people move elsewhere. Right. Anyone and that's so, anyone that's used Steam knows that they had a brilliant Steam store, which which you know was kind of flattening the market for like you know buying shitty expensive games and then i don't know they kind of like let their quality control go and you ended up with ended up with some stuff on the valve store that probably shouldn't have been there um or i don't know big picture mode which was supposed to bring the console experience to your computer except it runs like ass and is barely compatible with the controller which they developed then abandoned right so they the company has since admitted that maybe just having people allowing people to 100% only work on what they want to work on is probably not conducive to, you know, ever getting anywhere. Um, but what that to me then what this suggests is is that again, like these kind of like flat like working structures are useful when everyone knows exactly what they're working for, but maybe not necessarily for settling the bigger question of what are we working for? Where, what is this being put toward? Where are we going? You know, how do we interact with the outside world? Um, you know, and it sounds like based on descriptions I've read about like Valve, that some of that is political even within there too, you know? Um, and it, that, 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 that parallel kind of reminded me of what we were talking about with Tom, where it's like, okay, they've they've exam- they've explained the fundamental principles of like you know production and so forth, but how do you actually decide what this what you're producing for? You know, what is the relationship between man and nature? How will resources be allocated, etc.? Um, anyway, yeah, no, th- those things are political in a way. There needs to be some kind of ability to do big structurally coordinated decisions for like and yeah it's a sort of unanswered question 
as to how this exactly gets done without creating the central statistics bureau that becomes a general secretary, et cetera. In an activist context, too, I think one of the reasons like non-pyramidal organizations also fail in a similar way is because they end up having the same problem as a pyramidal organization and that like a small group of people is trying to do everything, right? And they're trying to basically manage the problem of like capitalism with like a handful of like small working groups, you know, and that insane level of complexity can't possibly be processed by like a handful of people. There is a, there is a part where my jaw dropped because he essentially made the, made the, basically sounded out the metaphor I was going with in my head because, you know, I quoted the classical, like Leninist, like, ancient, feudal, capitalist, socialist, full communist mode of production, like, series before. But I do sort of think historical materialism has something to say. And overall, I would more put the Soviet Union as something like, you know, that tributary category that we had that was something, but a form of it that was building towards capitalism. So almost like a, (laughs) almost like a, you know, what is it? An amber towards orange mode of production. <laughs> like, uh, but he, l- l- he, he makes l- that, Listen. Yeah. Listen. This, the state capitalism debate hasn't even been set. Like, or, or I don't want to have the what color is the Soviet Union <laughs> in this framework debate. I mean, the state capitalist one might be that it's like an orange, right? <laughs> or like a green orange, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, look, I'm feeling real amber energy for me right now. Like I'm trying to stay on, I'm trying to stay in teal mindset. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I can't, I can't have you heart. Hey, listen, you need to shut the fuck up. I can't have you harshing my teal vibes with your shitty, rigid amber energy. <laughs> hey, I mean, look, I'm telling, I'm telling you that you're the amber one here. Okay. Like you, you, you're not fully ascending. I, I think you might be stuck in green consciousness, really. <laughs> and sometimes in the green consciousness, one mistakes amber for green. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's really what it is. It's an am- amber green, right? Because when he really gets into green and like how, I don't know, idealistic it can be and like how sometimes it's very vulgar distributionist. Uh, cer- certainly the Bolshevik Central Committee, when Stalin was running it, operated by consensus. Everybody knows this. Just say, uh, but it was, uh, it was an impulsive red consensus, if you know what I mean. I mean, let's talk a little bit about two consensus where he contrasts like different modes of decision making, right? Um, where there's basically like top down hierarchical, which is alienating, right? Yeah, consensus. And then, um, which is, you know, you end up in endless meetings, right, and hardly make a decision. Then you have voting where, you know, he basically says that's bad because, you know, experts aren't being listened to, which is, you know, again, interestingly, like a liberal critique. Um, but what he contrasts this with and what he argues should replace this within organizations is what he calls the advice process. Um, so the advice process is basically you can any, – any employee can pretty much do – anything they want for the company but they have to basically consult both people who are experts in whatever they're trying to work on and they have to consult every stakeholder 
for everyone who will be meaningfully affected by the decision or course of action that they take. And this kind of inverts consensus in a way because it one of the problems that you have with consensus, not even consensus, but any decision-making uh, structure I've observed in activist spaces or whatever, is that oftentimes you begin relying on what they call like bottom liners. And bottom liners are people who are basically force something to happen or bug people to make it happen, the thing that whatever was decided upon, decided upon previously. And the author argues that the advice process avoids this by the person seeking the advice has to execute. And they don't have to basically get permission from anybody, but they just have to consult them, and then they can make their own decision. And even if that goes completely against the advice they were given by the people around them, right, in, in principle. Um, and this gives them, a, like, if there's, so if, if a person has an idea and they want to pursue it, there's probably, like, one or two key aspects, aspects about it that really excite them, that make them that inspire them to execute it and bring it into realization. And if in the committee process or the top-down process or the consensus process, those parts get picked out, the person isn't going to be particularly motiv- motivated anymore to do it. So the advice process basically allows those, the res- those elements to basically remain within a proposal and then bas- get modified to be something that would be more suitable to be useful to the other people in the organization broadly, right? That's the, that's the theory, and that's what the author claims that they more or less observed uh, within multiple companies. Um, yeah, which I think is actually, and to me, that actually does seem like a very good idea. Um, especially if, you know, because what's key to all of this too is having a sense of buy-in from everybody. Um, particularly, he'll, he'll argue later in the book that you really can't transition to a teal-style organization unless the ownership of the company is 100% on board with it, um, which is a very sober, it was, to his credit, very sober assessment. He basically says people come to him like, I work in a, I work in a company that's, not on, that's you know, still on green or um, orange mindset, but I want to get to teal, and, and is there anything I can do? And he's like, well, can you convince like, the leadership to do it? And they're like, no. Well, he's like, but there's probably nothing you could do then. Um, yeah, which again, and that's where, that's where this starts to run into the main problem is the problem of ownership. (laughs) Yeah. And he doesn't have any answers. If your ownership isn't on, if the, if people that own it aren't on board, you're kind of done. Like, good luck with that. But yeah, you don't hear a lot about ownership here when talking about green organizations and their tendency to do you know joint stock companies he does talk about ownership um and he does credit green for tearing down old paradigms but he thinks it's not that easy for it to like come up with alternative proposals (laughs) right well because he views things solely within the framework of management um, and there's there's broader questions here because he talks about how one of the advantages is that you get so much to having basically giving employees control over their lives is that you get they begin to take a feel a sense of ownership of the country that sometimes is literal in terms of like stock options or whatever sometimes more figurative um, but to do that on some level you know you basically have to pay people enough that they're 
that they're, uh, you know, their basic needs are being taken care of. And if you're just out to exploit people, <laughs> right, you, you, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, right, like, the irony is, is that this author would probably think of themselves as, you know, against exploitation because they want wages and salaries to be, you know, above the threshold of needs because this guy's, you know, very into Maslow and stuff. Um, and there's even a, a chunk of what we read where you have people setting their own salaries and setting their own, you know, with various levels of, you know, consultants and like, you know, authority on the subject. Like you do have people setting their own salaries, setting their own salaries based on self-assessment. Like, so, th- I mean, there are some, <laughs> there is something that's kind of unusual for capitalism about these things you you must admit this you know there is some thinking outside the box so to speak here sure but i think that's why it so consistently gravitates towards more skilled labor right um like the, because there within that sector there you know there is going to be there is a just you have skill rents there is like an increase and right you within these organizations you have created more latitude for people to develop their skills further by pursuing whatever they want to do. One example he gives is a guy who I believe this was at FAVI just felt like I really I feel like we could be bringing in better technology for our guys to use. We should really have somebody go around the world and go to conferences and go to different factories and examine how they're doing things. And the CEO is like, "Well, you should just do that." And so they the dude basically he writes all his own bills you know, he, all his own expenses, that's all covered. And a lot of the way that this functions and is regulated is almost purely through peer pressure. One way it's regulated, because if this guy's just jetting around to jet around and he's really just out gambling or whatever, he has to come back and give presentations. And whether or not what he's doing is adding value to the company, it really depends on how many people are coming to his presentations. And that's what how this works with a lot of this stuff. Any initiative you set up, if nobody in the company is working with you, then you're not really doing anything. You're just basically sitting in a cubicle or whatever. Similarly, too, if if somebody isn't a good fit at the company, no one's going to work on them with anything because no one has to. And so he they argues that a lot of the discipline within the company is just people <laughs> sort of getting iced out. Well, yeah, just, and leaving up leading of their own leaving of their own volition. Yeah, just realizing, and he says in his experience. And he reminds me so much of those anthropologists that visit some tribe and say, yeah, there's there's no, you know, sexual assault out there. It's all gravy. Everyone just gets along. It's fine. So I'm a, kind of skeptical about his reporting, honestly. But, you know, it it does sound like that there are, su- there's, you know, sufficient notice on an autonomous basis that maybe you don't belong here that out of you know, informal social pressure, people just dip. Like, for the most part. It is believable. It's not It's not that crazy. It's, uh, But yeah, apparently there are exceptions, so that's not a surprise. Well, and, and the, but the reason that stuck out to me is it kind of maps onto what we were talking about with the, um, the different uh, guilds, like, basically self-managing within, like, a labor-time chits-based economy, where, because you have, and this is another thing, too, internally to these companies, oftentimes there will be 
for instance, Sun Systems is the example, the key example for this one. There will be complete transparency in terms of the company's books to the employee. Mm, mm. And any employee can find out anything about what's happening in the company at any time. So much that they're often subject to blackout dates on any stock they might hold in the company. Um, yeah, I was reminded of the principles when we were reading through that. Like, And even stuff like performance evaluations are open, which is, you know, kind of, kind of, I don't know, just... It was chilling in a way because of you think about how that would be implemented in an orange. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like, and he even, in he says it, he comments on it of how how that would impact people from in an orange mindset and orange organizations, but how it's because everything is transparent and tractable so that people on the shop floor can make the best decisions. Oh, and of course, at one point in the book, it says values created on the shop floor as being one of the fundamental tenants of one of the companies he's looking at. Um, <laughs> not to mention all of the emphasis on, you know, the business of this organization being the task of the workers themselves. Like, that is pretty much in step with fundamental principles. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what that's what's crazy because you know, and and similarly, we we're talking about how the different guilds could basically know how work is being done in the field, and and if some fat thing, something was out of sorts at the particular factory, there would be some kind of regional or or you know industrial based peer pressure that yeah. would that would serve that would serve to regulate things. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, there's it's the, he seems to be identifying cases where the kind of the kind of work culture that you would want in a post-capitalist society seems to be operative in these particular like niche examples. But again, it's, it definitely seems to depend on having a situation where there is – because he, he says one of the prerequisites for setting this up within a company is trust. Like the key example that he uses is at FAVI, um, the auto parts plant uh, in, uh, in France – Basically, the guy, the CEO had been working there for a year and eventually kind of just called everybody on the floor and said, okay, it's Christmas. Uh, next year when we come back, we're going to do things differently. We're going to, and he basically went and began redesigning, basically flattening the hierarchies within the organization and giving a great deal of latitude to the employees there. Uh, one key example he points to is that way that at one point, like he took the locks off of the supply closets so anyone could just take whatever they wanted whenever they wouldn't have to sign anything out. And this resulted in a theft at one point. And he basically just put a sign up saying, uh, please, if you want to borrow something and there's extra, that's fine. But please don't steal something because we'll have to fire you for that. And there were never any thefts after that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the, like, there's even like a humanist critique in this that he gets into where he talks about how, you know, when you when you put things under lock and key, you're basically telling people that they're untrustworthy. You know, when you put all these like rail guards in place within an organization, what you're telling people is that they're you know, th- this is very similar to the critique that you get of like the the school to prison pipeline. So that you're you're basically you're you're telling people that they're that they're shit. Now, granted, I don't think that the stuff is is just there to demoralize people. Although that's certainly an aspect. But if you're at a place where you're not paying people enough to get by, you do need to put rails on things because they'll steal shit and get the fuck out of that shitty ass job. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. The idea that this is. Ultimately, this like post-scarcity mindset, of course, reflects a level of post-scarcity conditions that 
is almost entirely unremarked upon. I, actually, is it? It's just entirely unremarked upon. I think it's entirely unremarked upon. Like it's outside of the scope of what he's doing here. Well, what, he touches on it a little bit in terms of decision making because he talks about how before, like at FAVI, before these changes, when an order went in, there was a whole like bureaucratic process, and there were a bunch of middlemen that went between the company getting and doing basically sales management, and then getting things and telling people on the shop floor, build this here, this here, this here. Whereas the new system is. Uh, at the beginning of the week, they just have a meeting with everybody and they explain like how many orders they got and they just t- basically work it out on the floor who, who's going to do what and how they're going to basically meet these targets or if they you know, need to get bigger targets or if they, you know, what they can do to uh, respond to market conditions. And he basically talks about reality as being a very powerful motivator or in this case, I feel like necessity would have been a better word or maybe even the, like the discipline of the market. But yeah, basically within these organizations... Um, all the information about the company's standing in the market and probably how profitable or not the business is is something that everyone is aware of at all times, or at least they have access, or at least they have access to that information. But again, like you have to, the prerequisite is you have to pay people enough that it's worth it for them to stay at the company and work, and that it wouldn't be a bigger payout for them to steal some equipment and the fuck off. <laughs> One of the income proposals that really seems to appreciate in one of the organizations is he thinks that this is a great teal approach that the top compensated individual in the company, their, their salary is basically tied to the lowest paid employee. And he contrasts this to green organizations where it's often the average paid employee, or maybe they'll try to pay everyone the same or something. I mean, in the example he was citing, it was, you know, the top compensated can make 14 times what the you know, lowest compensated can. And so, and he is sensitive that people might object to that multiple, but he's trying to highlight that, you know, evolutionary teal consciousness can really, in this way, I guess be more, you know, egalitarian-minded and have, like, smarter workarounds. Now, of course, that's not quite the Paris Commune role of... Uh, <laughs> or maybe maybe it's a dig at the Paris Commune. You, know, you just want to do the average. You know, you just wanted to compensate people at the average wage, you know. Evolutionary teal is uh, knocking you pluralistic greens out. I do... One thing I do like that runs through this is there is... Even though, yeah, there is some... You know, sort of woo-woo West Coast type style of thinking here. There is there is a very humanistic critique of what it means to like exist at work. And he talks about the way that you know, basically, people when you go to work at most places, you tend to be playing a role. You don't bring your entire self to it. Part of that is you're dealing in a hierarchy, and you have to make sure that like people above you don't hate you and especially people around you at work don't hate you uh the other reason is hr stuff basically tries to keep like any like personal entanglements or anything from being like present in any kind of workspace so there's this kind of like sanitization that takes place you know in terms of what you know life is like within a office setting or whatever um that is problematic uh because it's restrictive to 
basically when you're at some place that makes up a plurality if not a majority of your conscious waking hours and you can't really like be a fully realized human being there uh is kind of like the most depre- one of the more depressing things about modern life even in places where there maybe isn't a whole lot of like hunger or immediate material scarcity for people right um like it's the thing like it's and it's such boilerplate culturally like every you know you know, like it's like it's the opening to the Incredibles, right? You know what I'm saying? Like it's 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 such a common thing that it's it's hackneyed to even like point it out in movies and shit. You know, work sucks. I know. It does remind me that I was first introduced to this new work current that apparently this is resonant with on the Partially Examined Life. You know, it was this philosophy podcast that I, I think you know I've considered influential. It's where I first heard uh, Derek, see Derek Barn on an episode of, uh, he was talking about, I think, Derrida and structuralism. And sus- he's talking about Saussure, whatever, and who, give, who gives a shit? Um, but, you know, they're very, li- they're very much liberals, and they could sound out this critique of alienated labor in, in a non-Marxist way. And so I, the more I think about it, this new work current is certainly people that imbibe their marks and probably tried green organizations at some point and felt that they were dismal failures, which goes why there's, you know, much made of the critique of crit- critique of consensus in this book. That's just headcanon here, just spitballing. But my intuitions are building based on remembering that interview. It's this old German sounding guy talking about how, you know, work is depressing and, you know, looking for new ways to work. One of the more audacious claims made in the book when it comes to management through the advice process, because he talks about, okay, like that's easy enough if you have like a single firm is the entire thing. But what happens when like with something like Bertzorg, where you're dealing with all these pods, um, all over the country or all over the city or wherever, whatever locality. And you have to basically make a decision collectively as a company. What he basically advocates here is, is management through posting. Posting (laughs) is the ultimate form of management. And so he basically has, you know, an intercompany. What what some of these companies do is just have an intercompany blog where they talk about, where he basically kicks around some ideas about what he's thinking about in terms of whatever decision has to be made. And then people just chime in. And then he uses people's chime-ins to inform his decision. <laughs> yeah, this guy would love Slack. Yeah, two two other really funny like Marxist things that popped up is the um, that people are not made to fit predefined jobs. That jobs emerge from a multitude of roles and responsibilities, uh, which you know, in a teal organization, you could hunt in the morning fish in the evening and critique at night. There's also like the weird. One of the creepiest things in this book is talking about how people stop identifying as workers in these organizations, which on the one hand, Oh yay. Yay. We're transcending, you know, on the other hand, after having read the history of separation recently, (laughs) I couldn't help but think about like what, what vanished with workers' identity? I, w- I want to read this. Um, this is page 92. The organizations I researched didn't only drop job titles, 
almost all of them also decided to drop words like employee, worker, or manager and replace them with something else, most often simply colleague. If we stop and listen carefully to the meaning carried by the words employee, worker, or manager, we end up wondering how we use them so freely in our everyday life. So in a way, it's it's almost like calling everybody comrade or something, right? Like you're you're kind of the but but in another way, you know, they are capitalist workers in a capitalist firm. Like and this kind of or this kind of organizing would make it very difficult for somebody to feel like that they're exploited or even that they're, you know, experiencing alienated labor. Well, that, I mean that's the question though, like Hasn't their labor been de-alienated? Haven't has are they still being exploited? Well, ex- in a in a in any meaningful sense, exploitation in a meaningful Marxian sense is purely about like the wage form, right? Like, are they bringing in as much value as they're creating? And if not, then do they have control over what happens to that value? Yeah, I, that that but that's a, and that's an ownership question. <laughs> Right. So in a Marxian sense, they're exploited. But so much of the feelings of alienation have been, at least, you know, if this is successful, and we could go into a a bit later where our critiques of this might be, right? But if if, if this is successful, they are essentially employed, they're essentially exploited in the least alienating way possible. They feel like they have as much power as they possibly could in an exploitative arrangement. But, I mean, the thing is, like, work is great. <laughs> like, like work is... It gives you, like, a sense of purpose. You know, like, all that, all that Hegelian, like, development shit and all that. Like, like, work is actually good for people. And if they can do it in a way that is you know like self-actualizing and like fe- like makes them a part of a blo- of a broader collective um and isn't done in a way where they have to like amputate parts of themselves in order to ex- fit into some box or exit like like that's exactly what you want um like the the to me like the biggest problem with this is precisely because he neglects the question of ownership because that would open up a whole other can of worms that are completely beyond what he's trying to do here you know at the most maybe you know he's like a closet like richard wolf style marxist where he wants there to be i guess for you know for what co-ops are for richard wolf like teal organizations are for this guy and honestly him doing this is probably more realistic than like richard wolf doing like neil lasallian like let's beg the state to set up you know some shit they were doing in spain and italy or whatever in the last couple decades like i mean Jake, we have a good grift here. All we have to do is put out a management book that says you can't truly be evolutionarily teal unless you do cooperative ownership. No, you have to have to get on that circuit. You have to have the pedigree. You have to be a McKinsey guy, uh, or at least point. you know, yeah, you have to you have to have that mix of yeah, I have the academic training, but I also have the real world experiences, and I haven't neglected the spiritual side. I did something in Boulder, <laughs> you know. Of course, yeah. The holy center of Boulder. Yeah, he he can't he can't articulate, and he can't also really explain what's going to drive this leap in consciousness. What uh, people sharing his PDF? It is like, like it is idealist. 
Yeah. Like how like how's that gonna happen? Um, it, does he really? Because he doesn't mention anything about like what have the relations of production changed such that this will become like the automated default way of producing? Is now he says it's more, he says it's more productive this mode of working, but right. is it more profitable? Those are two different things. Well, that's just it. Is that, and again, in rhyme with Marxian theory, he feels like that this mode of organizing will outcompete other models right will displace them in a sense organically and that green is not capable of doing this and therefore most activities still organize on an orange model in, in our societies although admittedly he thinks labor unions are amber <laughs> Well, he he hastens to add that yeah, that's one. That's definitely yeah. That's a yikes. That's a yikes for me, that, fam. That's, that's telltale. But one thing that maybe like an empirical question that we could ask: to what extent any of that is even? I mean, it obviously, probably isn't. But he he often remarks like, "What well, Sun Hydraulics is tra- is a publicly traded company." Um, it's like, what does finance capital think of this kind of organization? Because that's what's key. Because you need to to set up these kind of organizations, you need money, right? You need and if you know if an exploitative operation that's you know outsources a lot of its labor to like the cheapest, most grinding possible <clears throat> thing is going to be a more a lucrative investment uh, for the people with you know who have the money. Like, why would they invest in this shit just because it's more productive? Okay, cool. Like, I guess everyone working there is having a good time. Where's my money? Fuck you. Pay me. Oh, you're just in an orange mindset. You're really harshing my teal. <laughs> yeah. He says something yeah, I, I, toward. The- I have red mindset. Yeah. In the important way. Yeah, I was. I was thinking the Soviet Union had all four, right? Like. Yeah, I mean, maybe- like Stalin basically walked around with a club well, in like a Flintstone style, you know. Well, you know, for a moment it had five. Like right in the be- right in the beginning, it started out with evolutionary teal. But then, you know, things started getting more red, maybe. Like, then you hit an orange period. No, sorry, more red. Then you hit a... Amber. A, is it amber? or Is NEP amber? I, yeah. No, I guess... I, and the NEP would, I guess industrialization, you get kind of like... You could say it's like red-orange. But I feel like after that, once you get like the kind of solidification of the bureaucratic system you kind of you know the, especially you get but then you get to Brezhnev yeah, you're in amber, amber at that oh, point yeah, so this is a hard yeah. amber because yeah like I guess I guess the civil war is and you know the fixing of democracy and stuff that's devolution from evolutionary teal to like a red amber that goes to uh, you know an amber orange during the NEP and then yeah you have a, a sort of slot but then there are periods where you have a sort of like, I don't know, maybe maybe green is in like Yugoslavia or something. Or <laughs> where's the green period in the Soviet Union? Because I feel like they they had they had a nice shade of evolutionary teal right off the bat that uh, that wore off. And you know, I don't know. Anyway, councils, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't help it. How can you not think about these things? You know, w- w- would the Soviet Union break? This typology too, because the the only thing he says about the Soviet Union is on page uh, eighty five. 
Yeah, he talks about central planning. Yeah. If the notion of trusting the collective intelligence of a system seems risky or outright foolish, think about this. The idea that a country's economy would be best run by the heavy hand of central planning committees in Soviet style has been totally discredited. We all know that a free market system where a myriad of players pick up on signals, make decisions, and coordinate among themselves works much better. Yet, for some reason, inside organizations, we still trust the equivalent of central planning committees. Self-management brings the principles that account for successful free market economies inside organizations. Yeah, that's some that's some heavy ideology right oh, there. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, this like so, there is a rhizomatic point there that I I do think that markets outflank centrally planned bureaucracies in a way that is I think undeniable. However, you said honestly, if I still had the if I saw the soundboard, I'd play the toilet flush sound as soon as you just said rhizomatic. Well, Get out of here. I mean, rhizomatic. That it, it is basically <laughs> a toilet flush sound. No, but but they're right though. Like the Soviet Union probably would have been better off if they did a big NEP and they allowed the law of value to operate. Like not not that I would like it more, but like they might still be around. That's the dongest move, right? Like this, there is something true here. How does it? How do you explain Walmart? How do you explain? How, how do you explain when central planning does kind of like really dominate certain kinds of huge bureaucracies in that big way? Like, are, well, are, this, they this just is, not have the shift in consciousness yet, or is there yeah, maybe some reason that they do that? I suppose not. That, I mean, that's that's where you get into the real idiocy of this. You know, that's where the idea that's where the idealism really becomes apparent and like the limitations of this. Yeah, where where this chapter 2.3 uh, where the chapter 2.3 ends up is I hesitate to say crazy, but it's fucking nuts. Like like I don't know, the the end of this chapter I feel goes off the deep end. First of all, he does like an interesting like set of, you know, misconceptions about self-management. At first, this stuff is like a range of like on point to this is hilariously Marxist. So for instance, for instance, <laughs> he basically goes full diamat about evolutionary teal. So yeah, this is, this is page 134. We're going to feel the descent, but there's some good stuff on the way. Leading scientists believe that the principal science of the next century will study, will be the study of complex autocatalytic self-organizing, nonlinear, and adaptive systems. This is usually referred to as complexity or chaos theory. The teal equivalent to Orange's Newtonian science. Okay? Let's go. But even though we are only now starting to get our heads around it, self-management is, is not a startling new invention by any means. It is the way life has operated in the world for billions of years. Bringing forth creatures and ecosystems so magnificent and complex... We can hardly comprehend them. Self-organization is the life force of the world, thriving on the edge of chaos with just enough order to funnel its energy, but not so much as to slow down adaptation and learning. I mean, I don't have a bong with me. If you had the soundboard, this would be the time for the bong rip, but... Yeah, we gotta bring the soundboard back. I gotta get, like, a real board. I do feel like we should bring the soundboard back because it was stupid and it made our smartest fans upset. So... Um, it, it was, it was, 
play, you know, it gave me that morning zoo, like Howard Stern <laughs> kind of substrate vibe, whatever, whatever those two shows have in common. So that it goes through four misconceptions. I think the first three are cool, actually. And then the fourth, I feel like really goes off the deep end. So the first is the, the first misconception is that there's no structure, management or leadership to which he definitely argues again that it'll be dialectical and here he quotes the founder and president of Morningstar Chris Roofer about I mean again it's a phase change metaphor and it's the same phase change metaphor that's usually used for the first law of dialectics clouds form and then go away because atmospheric conditions Temperatures and humidity cause molecules of water to either condense or vaporize. Organizations should be the same. Structures need to appear and disappear based on the forces that are acting in the organization. When people are free to act, they're able to sense those forces and act in ways that best fit with reality. Our evolutionary teal is just in sync with the fabric of reality. Tell me that's not diamat. Tell me it's not. And But he's, there is like a point that he's making that uh, people who are new to the idea of self-management sometimes mistakenly assume that it simply means taking out the hierarchy or running everything democratically based on consensus. Uh, taking the hierarchy out of an organization and running everything democratically based on consensus. I hope it is clear by now that there is, of course, much more than that. And so there's a sense, there's a critique of a sort of lazy councilism that's like, yeah, let's just... uh We'll run um, capitalism. We'll just self-organize capitalism. We'll do Richard Wolff capitalism, which, you know, again, most counselists don't really think this, but apparently points of view were prevalent enough that people made a big deal in France about it. Don't ask me. I don't know these people. As far as I know, it's mostly a straw man. But that critique is there. Um, the second misperception is that everyone is equal. Again, it is claimed that the interlocking processes and structures allowing for self-organization do not resolve the question of power and inequality. They transcend it. Um, the point is not to make everyone equal. It's to allow all employees to grow into the strongest, healthiest versions of themselves. Gone is the dominator hierarchy. And precisely for that reason, lots of natural evolving overlapping hierarchies can emerge. Hierarchies of development, skill, talent, expertise, and recognition, for example. So it's kind of egalitarianism beyond egalitarianism, where everyone is capable of full and free development. And so it doesn't even quite matter somehow that there are these hierarchies, which again, if you know, I just feel like if you know anything about incentive structures, that if that seems very suspect. Um, but his point, his weird Marxist point about egalitarianism beyond egalitarianism is hilarious. And also Marx's, uh, Marx's critiques of bourgeois egalitarianism were part of, uh, Stalinist, or was part of Stalin's setting of differential uh, compensation, actually, which I find kind of, it's kind of funny. The third misperception is that it's about empowerment you know, in teal organizations, people are not empowered by the good graces of other people. It's baked into the very fabric of the organization. Individuals need not fight for power. They simply have it. And then it goes into how that, 
that many corporations, excuse me, many organizations today claim to be empowering, but note the painful irony in that statement. If employees needed to be empowered, it is because the system's very design concentrates power at the top and makes people the lower runs, rungs essentially powerless, unless leaders are generous enough to share some of their power. Okay, so this is mostly, I think, okay, so far I've been kind of making fun of it. But there are mostly interesting points that resonate with Marxist lessons. The thing about equality seems really ridiculous because we're not really talking about ownership that much. But whatever, it doesn't matter. Misperception four: It's still experimental. It so this guy claims that this is no longer. It's not. It's not true that this is still experimental because this one chamber orchestra did it. Um, a chemical manufacturer did it. Whole Foods did it. Okay, um, Wikipedia did it, Alcoholics Anonymous did it, Linux did it, okay, and, and that it's not experimental because of this. To that I say, it's very grandiose, but I don't think it's so crazy that he can like find examples of people like be working at like a fulfilling and healthy organization <laughs> you know like have like have like finding like fulfillment and meaning in their jobs and having like a sense of like camaraderie and common purpose with the people they work with you know like or, or and not, and or having a system where you don't have like this you know like insane like you know white collar bureaucracy within the company that you know tells everybody what to do right you know that's not, that's not that's not that that's not that crazy. i mean no, obviously no. Uh, his, I think his, yeah, his teleological framework and his the humanistic bong rip dimensions of this. He's gonna take it to that place, you know, where it reads like this insanely grandiose thing. But I think you could probably say the same thing about, same thing about Marxism. Like, I think if we've come, when you know, God willing, communism is put into practice, I think it will be such like a self like obvious and simple thing that all of this like rhapsodic theorization on like what it would mean for the completion of the individual um would just seem kind of like silly <laughs> you know i i i built all the way up to this just so i could read this part out loud because this is where this is one of the only parts of this whole book where i felt like it was truly totally disconnected from reality we'll get to the other later I believe it is because we have grown up with the traditional with traditional hierarchical organizations that we find it so hard to get our heads around self-management. Young people, on the other hand, who have grown up with the web, variously referred to as millennials, Generation Y, or Generation F for Facebook, they just get self-management instinctively. Let's get our Fs in the chat for Facebook and for millennials. So on the web, management writer Gary Hamill notes, no one can kill a good idea. Everyone can pitch in. Anyone can lead. No one can dictate. You get to choose your cause. You can easily build on top of what others have done. You don't have to put up with bullies and tyrants. Agitators don't get marginalized. Excellence usually wins and mediocrity doesn't. Passion killing policies get reversed. Great contributions get recognized and celebrated. Does that strike you as the internet that you know? Yeah, literally every one of those things describes White Boy Summer. <laughs> okay, you can't, it's a good idea. You can't kill it. 
you know, everyone can, everyone can do something to bring something to the table to make this a great white boy summer. Um, <laughs> great contributions get recognized and celebrated. You know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I find his like for how like kind of in touch with things this is, and this is twenty. You said fourteen or when was this? Uh, twenty fourteen, I believe. Right. So like, this person must be the last human on earth that thinks all this is true, right? Like, because the whole turn against social media. Because we we had social media for a while because before it became like a threat to democracy and all the very you know and the and the exception to where behavioral scientists started being like, oh, the future is bad for you, right? Like there was there was still definitely a lot of yet yeah, like tech like techno utopian optimism about the internet still at that point, yeah. It must be the last date before everybody gets black mirrored about it, even the people working there. It it sort of sticks out like a sore thumb as like something less, something more like timely. You know what I mean? And it, I guess you know, like Marxism, I would read this sober pamphlet sometimes of critical analysis, and then like the last couple paragraphs are like, "But it's a good thing all that's about to change, because people are f- finding out and." You know, like, and they'll just, I don't know, it'll just fly into some kind of fancy about why it's going to happen. So I don't think you're wrong in, in drawing out the parallel. Uh, in some ways, I would say in in some ways it would be easier for people to adopt evolutionary teal consciousness in organization than change the mode of production. But then I want to get into the other thing that I, I thought in what we read, it really gets wrong, like really gets wrong is that it doesn't really believe in incentives. Like, and I don't just mean compensation as incentives or or that thing. He points to how sad it is that all we can think about is the carrot and the carrot and the stick or something. This is some true evolutionary teal mindset, man. It's so post-scarcity that you forgot about all the scarcity in the world, or at least it lived experiences of artificial scarcity that will definitely dash evolutionary teal consciousness on the rocks over and over and over again for the vast majority of humanity. Like, the okay, not wanting to think of incentives in a company because you because you know incentives are an external good we want to cultivate internal goods you know um is one thing but sort of denying how important they are because evolutionary teal consciousness has decided this is in it's it's, it's just it that that's not real <laughs> that's not real well, yeah i mean like like i said like yeah, like you would have to be to really achieve like evolutionary teal consciousness, you know, in a society wide scale. You, you would have to affect a mode, change in the mode of production. You have to, uh, you'd basically have to affect the change in ownership of the means of production, right? So, like, you can't, like, I'm saying you could probably, like, getting people to experiment with this at companies is more realistic, I think, than what Richard Wolf is trying to do. Or maybe he's onto something different these days. I'm, I don't really care with this stuff, but like, it's not realistic in the sense that yeah, you can't just by you know sharing this PDF or you know by you know having doing the right like talks to the right groups of you know like management types get people to adopt this and change things because like I said, you still have you have 
two key a- there's a few well there's a few different key aspects here one like i said um there's the imperatives of finance to turn a profit right uh there's just the political domination of the bourgeoisie in terms of maintaining like the property form as it is and like maintaining a unnecessary uh you know economic and, orga- and social organization of the world in order to you know stay on top of the pyramid and to keep the pyramid you know like you you have to contest them for power in order to really yeah you can make like some isolated like exif examples for this like in the right niches but to to remove like the fetters you know on the forces of production like you have to you have that's like a, that's a political question and that's a organization you know that's that's much bigger than just you know everybody going to the right retreats and like meditating together and shit Jake I, I so rarely say this but Shut the fuck up, man. You're harsh on my teal. You're harsh on my teal so hard. My teal. Yeah, I'm sorry. My teal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, return, yeah, return to infrared. Return to monkey. Yeah. That, uh... That's it for this time. Uh, when we recorded this, one thing that I was not as aware of... Like, I knew about McKinsey mostly because... Um, basically through Pete Buttigieg and people talking about that um, since then I've read a little bit more on their history as a company what they are exactly and it makes me much more suspicious of the text even than I was at the time that I read it Um, the impression that I really get is that this is a guy who was involved with this company probably did and saw some fucked up shit and then quit you know probably went to South America did some ayahuasca and then wrote this and made it his mission to like atone for his time at this uh, at this fucking consulting firm anyway uh if you want to support the show, uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, like, yeah, you know, leave a leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can hit us up on any of the various social media platforms that we have. Send us an email, swampsidechats at gmail.com. And so until then, and so until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.